0: The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Co-Filled Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo.
1: Okay, we are live. I am Bill Amadeo from the Commandison and Amadeo and Gravel and the Ships. Raise that volume. And the Shiawassee 6. And today we are doing a live on April ninth, 1992. You know, there's a lot of ways to tell this story. And sometimes we look back on situations. You look at it in two ways I look at that day As something That was pure tragedy But it was also something That really made me tough Made me break into stuff You know Just made me kind of evolve If you would It was a hell of a way to evolve Let's talk about it For those of you who haven't figured it out. April 29th, 1992 was the day of the Rodney King verdict. And the day of this verdict was a fascinating day. Because the verdict comes down in California. Alright. But it hit nationwide. I mean, there were reactions. And this is pre-internet. I can only imagine... What the internet would be like today when the verdict was read. And hold on one sec. So, do some background. I'm a white kid in Ducktown, Atlantic City. And I know some people will say, oh, that's not a big deal. It was in the 90s. Okay, let me just be really clear about that. It was a time of brutality. It was a time of survival. And I was a sophomore in high school and freshman year of high school was not fun. Uh, you went from St. James which was just a group of assholes in the suburbs to Atlantic City High and the chitney and the walking to school back and forth was just kind of fascinating. And freshman year, you got tougher, you learned to survive, etc. But sophomore year, things really took place. And like anybody, there's fear, there's this anxiety, there's this depression of being poor and being completely in a scenario where you don't want to be. But something happened that year. And let me give you some background. To in 1989, "Do the Right Thing" came out by Spike Lee, and I think Spike Lee is an absolute genius. But his films had a interpretation in the inner city that often equated to violence. Um, people can say whatever they want. Again. There'll be no debating how brilliant Spike Lee is, but however, I will say that the interpretation of some of his films was extremely subjective. I guess you could say about any filmmaker, but... When Do The right Thing came out, there was hostility between the black kids and the Korean kids. Now, Asian kids... There's Filipino, there's Chinese, there's Korean, there's Vietnamese, so on and so forth. Back in our neighborhood, you just saw Asian versus black, Asian versus Spanish, if there were a few white kids in the mix. And do the right thing led to a lot of hostilities in our neighborhood. But I'm still in grammar school at that point. When Jungle Fever came out, another Spike Lee film in nineteen ninety one, things start to alter. When Flipper, and it was Anna, I believe, hooked up in Jungle Fever, it became a cool thing for white girls to hook up with black guys, and that really had a profound effect on Atlantic City High. Growing up in an old black neighborhood, you would see a lot of the Ventura Margate girls come to Atlantic City and hook up with the black guys as this became a cool thing because of Jungle Fever and Spike Lee. And it was interesting because you're kind of caught between these worlds. Because in your neighborhood, you're not as cool as the black or Spanish kids. And in the Margate and Veterinary where you would go play ball or something, you were kind of viewed as white trash. You were kind of like in the worst of all aspects of things. But the one thing about Jungle Fever that I always appreciated was that diversity started becoming this real thing. And Atlantic City High. Make no mistake about it, there was segregation. You know, it was segregation based on social economics and based on your IQ tests and so on and so forth. And there were what I deem a lot of racist teachers there. I can think of one that told AP English and there was like a superiority thing, like she taught the Margate kids, as opposed to Ms. Scandi who taught us the Atlantic City kids and so on and so forth. And you would have outliers that would jump into the higher classes, but it was kind of um, it was an interesting dynamic. On March 3rd of 91, I'm a freshman in high school then, the Rodney King tragedy occurred. And there was a guy filming it. Now back then, understand something, that was cutting edge technology. We didn't see things, there weren't body cams on cops, and I'm not gonna talk about certain cases I have, okay, but there just wasn't body cams on cops and dash cams, and there was a lot of unique aspects to us watching on national television, the Rodney King beating, which never should have occurred. And at that point, good cops became targets And innocent people that had their rights violated became hostile towards bad police. And it's funny how in 2022 we're still seeing where good officers become targets for the actions of bad ones. And sometimes because of the color of your skin or your family's socioeconomic status, a person gets targeted more so than somebody who may actually be a criminal. It's a dynamic that hasn't really changed much in 30 years. But the verdict came out on april twenty ninth nineteen ninety two. When the verdict came out, I remember I was in class and I'm walking from class to class and we heard about the verdict. And the arrogance and the hostility Of the teachers I deemed as racist. You could see the energy just sucked out of their face. The only thing I could equate it to. Was. The scene in a Bronx tale. When the bikers walk in. To the bar. And when. When the bikers are getting beat. And they're told, now you can't leave. When Sonny tells the bikers, now you can't leave, that was what I saw in some people's face. The Margate and Vendor kids were shuttled away that day. I have to go home. And I'm going home this way, right? So I'm going home to the Black and Hispanic and Asian neighborhood. And I will say this. When people say how tough you are, or how ballsy you are, or whatever, I go back to that day. Because I saw some sh** prior to that, but you saw fear that day. The Don Siglins and the Mike Chates and other so-called tough kids from the suburbs or whatever that once... You thought her had some kind of power. You learned this was all a joke. It was like going from high school baseball to the major leagues. And here's the major leagues of violence, okay? What I saw on April 29th, 1992. What I learned how to survive on that day. It was just bad. And, you know, we lived on Willow Avenue. Willow Avenue was this little terraced, and you made a left on Willow, and we had these little row homes, and here's this fence, and this fence is Pitney Village. And I just remember watching like an arson before my face at Pitney, and I'm watching this whole thing blow up, and I'm thinking, well, they're going to burn our family's house down. And my initial thought was, how do I protect the animals? How do I protect my aunt? How do I protect mom? Grandpa had just died a couple months earlier. He was the man of the family, and he's gone. So it's all on me. And um, I want to go. I want to leave with them. We don't have the money to leave. So here you are. You're poor, and you're white. And you think your family's going to die, and you want to protect them. I remember sitting outside on the porch with a baseball bat thinking somehow I'll protect them with this bat. I don't know. You kind of knew the end was near. And um, as I'm walking out, I just remember taking a beating and a couple kids got a hold of me and I was just getting my ass kicked. Something about getting your ass kicked brutally and surviving teaches you how to fight. You survived. But you also knew that death was probably going to happen soon and it's funny how when you're in a scenario where life sucks so bad, how you still have this need to survive. I guess this subconscious feeling I could turn around right and I remember thinking okay well I got to protect my animals and my family and if I die I die and you came to this conclusion and once you came to the conclusion that if you die so be it kind of get tough with that you know okay I remember riding my bike home the next day on the boardwalk and here's the thing about the boardwalk when you left AC High, you made a left, you went on the boardwalk. The boardwalk was your safety zone. That was a place where you knew you were going to be okay until you had to make that left on Mississippi Avenue, and then you might be in war zone again. But you were safe on the boardwalk. And I watched tourists getting attacked on the boardwalk. And I just thought to myself, oh, shit." Like, our one area of safety is no longer safe. I want you to think about that. If there was one aspect that you knew was safe in a battle zone, and that one area does not become safe anymore, now what? What does your 15-year-old mind say at this point? again, I'm thinking about that mare, mom, and the animals. And I'm riding my bike home. And I see this group of three kids. And they're going to come get me. I knew that. This is going to be bad. And part of you is ready for whatever comes. There's still this small part of survival and intellect that's going on. And I'm... Driving my bike, and I'm hitting about Florida Avenue, which is about two blocks from home. DuckTown goes from like Missouri Avenue to Texas Avenue. I won't give you a whole geography lesson, but it's not a huge area in Atlantic City. And I kind of skid my bike. I'm reliving this right now. I skid the bike, and I see them coming up. We don't have money at this point would be an understatement, but um, well, they want the bike. They also want to do some stuff to me, and I can imagine what's going to happen. There's going to be a beating, maybe a rape, maybe a murder, I don't know. But I took my bike, and there's these rails before you hit the beach, right? You're on the boardwalk, casino's to the left, rails to the right, and the beach are over the rails. And I took my bicycle in like a fit of strength. I don't know why I did this, but I sold them. I spit on the ground and I tossed the bike over the rail. And I start walking towards them. Now, part of me thinks they're gonna take the bike. I don't know. That just hot ass. And I was more comfortable on my feet than on the bike. Now, the funny thing about the bike is obviously the bike could go faster than somebody could run. But i felt safer on my feet and these guys took the bike and i'm running home and uh cop stops me and it's frankie calabrese the calabrese family amazing family you know generations of cops and frankie was friends with our family and frankie got me in the police car and he drove me home that day It's like, what's going on? Do you have any information? Do you know what's happening? And I said, look, man, all I can tell you is this. This is crazy right now. I know you guys are a target. I feel like I'm a target. I'm watching, like, bonfires going wrong in Pitney Village. I'm thinking they're going to burn my family's house down. I don't know what to do. We don't have the money to move. We're in a war zone. That's where we're in right now for this time period, which only lasted a few days, but it was hell. And, uh, you know, it's funny how people seem to find you at your weak moments. A lot of people viewed this as a race riot. And in comes some kids that are like white supremacists, I guess. Came in from Hamilton and certain areas. And they're starting to come around. And connect with a few white kids in the neighborhood. In essence. These guys. Were using the Rodney King. Verdict. For recruitment. You can understand where we're at with things right now. Okay. Like. It's a dangerous area. And here's this group. Of skinheads and scumbags. That come up to me. And they said look. We'll protect you. We got you. They offered me a gun. They offer me protection. You're one of ours. And it was weird. Because when the Mafia was in effect Ducktown was pretty safe. That time period ended. Then things were okay but they were rough. Then here comes this Rodney King thing and here comes these scumbags. And I knew I didn't like them. But you're sitting there at 15. You've got no money. I remember asking Father Selvin, what do I do? He basically told me it was my fault because our family was poor. And we're just... It's danger time. And these guys make their pitch. They offer you a gun. They offer you this. They offer you that. And I often see people turn to danger and gang connections, not to be tough, but because they're scared sh**less. And the scared sh**less thing in my chemical makeup is kind of like disappearing, but you're still in the survival mode. Thinking, How do I protect my family? And these white supremacists are trying to gather us up. I told him I'm good I don't want your gun I don't want your help I'm fine and you know there weren't a lot of white kids in the neighborhood but I remember calling a few of us up and we met near Patsy Wallace gym late one night and I'm like kind of the leader and I'm speaking like what are we going to do a couple of them wanted to go with the white supremacists. A couple did. A couple were just thinking maybe they'll kill themselves. A couple just had no answers. And I'm like, look, we need to try to stick together. We need to focus on education and sports to get the hell out of here. We need to make it through these next couple of years, but we got to find a way out. And it was... This like feeling of hopelessness. Cause every day, and this one for like four or five days, every day during that time period was another day of danger. It was like a bad movie. You didn't know when the movie was gonna end. And uh you'd be sitting in your room at night, listening to your walkman, petting your dogs, looking outside of Pitney Village thinking, how do I protect the family? Your own survival became secondary. But protecting the family was so critical. Got to protect Aunt Mary, Mom, and my animals. How do I accomplish this? I didn't want to be with those scumbags. I didn't want a gun. I've never been a fan of guns. Just not a gun guy, you know? And I know it's a big thing in Michigan. Look, if you love your guns, and you want to preserve your Second Amendment rights, that's fine. I'm just not a gun guy. And my fear of having a gun is if you came into my house to hurt my family, I would have blown your brains out. But I also not want to put myself in that situation. Could I try to protect them in another manner? For some reason, I thought the baseball bats would help. I don't know. Just a bad feeling. Um... And slowly it's only a few days but things got a little better a little better and the hell that was the Rodney King verdict disappeared and things went back to normal and I'm going to tell you normal sucked but after you experienced that you learned you could experience anything I literally felt like I was in a war zone and everybody will have a different story about that time period everybody will have a subjective point of view I look at that day as if it was the third layer of hell and the few days after that and when I think about April 29th 1992 I know Sublime did a song about it and there's been movies about it you know, I just... I look where we were as a society. I think about Do The Right Thing, I think about Jungle Fever, I think about, uh, there was a the movie Zebra Head, but pop culture without the internet had such a profound effect on what was going on in the inner city. And while pop culture still has such a huge effect on us, back then without the internet, when we saw something on movie or TV, We embraced it more because there weren't a ton of options it was like you watch this one thing as opposed to having all these options you know and you're poor and you're desperate you want to protect your family and you are a victim of circumstance and there were people that went through greater tragedies than me during those few days but it was also it was growing up it was maturing it was learning how to survive it was learning how not to fear your own personal death. I look back on April 29, 1992 as a day of great injustice, a day of sadness, and in some ways a day I'm actually thankful that I experienced because it did help mold a lot of things. But um, It was definitely a day in history that depending upon where you lived in the country, What your economic status was, what race you were, who your friends and family were, it played a role in how you perceive things. And that day at fifteen years old plays such a effect thirty years later. So it's weird, but you're kinda glad you experienced it, but you wish you didn't have to be.
0: The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio.
1: Uh, We're going to talk about talking to cops, what we should and shouldn't say to them. We'll talk about the pros and cons. We'll go through the pros real quick. Then we'll talk about the Chicago Bulls dynasty in 1998. A memory there. Michael Jordan's last championship team. Then we'll talk about Seinfeld's ending and the Sopranos' ending. Obviously, I'm completely normal right now that we're talking about the Bulls, Seinfeld, and the Sopranos. We'll start with business, we'll turn to pleasure. Are you cool with that? All right. The live audience is down. Got my. Uh, football and we got our softball from we won a tournament in the good old days and a bottle of water and everything a mature man needs at 6 at night okay that's about talking to cops why do we do it from an early age we have this belief that if we tell the truth it's gonna set us free i go back to my saint james days I remember the teachers used to say, if you just confess, this is gonna be okay. Here's the thing. When the police are looking for a confession, it's because they really don't have a good case. They need that confession to make the case. Now, you could outwork confession, all right? Hire Dr. Brian Cutler, do a Dolber hearing, just roll that happy horse shit. Reality is this, guys. When you talk, it's your get into jail free card. I remember, going back to 8th grade right now, I was accused of doing stuff I didn't do. They accused me of like writing something on the bathroom wall. And the people that told on me, they were actually doing a lot more shit. They were like dealing pot and stuff like that. But they were little, um, they were nobodies. So they ran to Miss McDevitt, the 8th grade teacher. Ah, oh, yeah, Billy did this and Billy did that. Here's what we learned from that. I was told if I would just confess, we'll be good to go. If I confess, I'll probably get kicked out of school. I didn't do what they accused me of doing. But when somebody who's an authority, let's take Linda McDevitt, that's kind of comical. But let's take Linda McDevitt for a minute. The 8th grade teacher is somebody that had respect, right? and they want you to confess. If you make the confession, they're going to use this against you. In that case, it wasn't anything that dramatic. Maybe get kicked out of school, maybe get held up, whatever. As we proceed in life, the police are the authority figures, supposedly. What they're looking to do is burn you with a confession. When they say we want to help you out, no they don't. What an officer's supposed to do, guys, is objectively gather the facts. Supposed to objectively gather the facts and present their complaint to the prosecutor. The prosecutor is then supposed to determine whether or not we have a charge. Then they present to the magistrate. Here's the deal. A lot of prosecutors are gonna feel compelled to sign off on a warrant because they have a tight relationship with the police. One of the things that could put it over the top is if you make an admission. Talking to the police is not going to help you. Now, there are times, believe it or not, when I know a case is gonna be bound for trial and I know my client's got nothing to hide and I will walk into the police station with a pass polygraph. I'll lay that shit right out. I will coach my client up, we'll do this. 95% of the time, talking to the police is a horrible idea. The other 5%, if you have an attorney that's coaching you up, okay. There could be strategy behind that I know certain prosecutors will say well they didn't talk to the cops so I'm gonna charge them sometimes it's better just to let that happen and deal with it then as opposed to risking making a confession now innocent people make confessions here's how get the words twisted A is accused of raping B and they say to a did you rape B and A says no but we had sex Right there, a crooked cop is going to say, aha, he admitted to it. No, he admitted to sex. He didn't admit to rape. But this kid is getting confused now. And they'll say to this kid, well, are you sure she consented to it? Well, I think so. Oh, well, he thinks so. He's admitting that he did it. Now, that's bullshit, right? But the kid without counsel talking to the police, they're not looking for the truth cops can use deception now as a defense lawyer it's our job to stick it up their ass when they do that a cop can lie to try to get to the truth let's think about that a cop can lie to try to get to the truth isn't the goal of both prosecution and defense to get to the truth i don't think the goal is just to get convictions or dismissals we want to get to the truth right So if a cop's gonna lie to get to what they believe is the truth, are they objectively doing the investigation in the first place? Think about that. See it all the time. General rule, do not talk to the police. And if you're gonna talk to the police, make sure you have your lawyer present. Your lawyer is there. We are the hired gun to protect you, to save your ass. You cannot go at this alone. And by the way, for you guys out there, that think you're gonna say something to the police that's gonna get your case dismissed. You're not. There's nothing you can say. You deny it, they claim you're a liar. You admit it, they prosecute harder. There's no upside to it. There really isn't. This gets deeper when we get into trial prep. I will tell you, I did a study on this once. I think it was like 82% of the time when a criminal defendant takes a stand at their own trial, they hurt their case. Think about that. Now, a lot of lawyers will tell you the jury wants to hear what the defendant has to say. If you have a castle doctrine situation or a self-defense situation going on, well then you have to put your client on the stand. You gotta prep them hard for that, understand that. But in a normal situation that he said, she said with no evidence, the odds are the defendant is going to hurt themselves. They're gonna hurt themselves in court. We're going to hurt ourselves talking to the police. I think we learned from today at a hearing that many people saw, the more people talk, the better the option is for a lawyer to twist up things. There was something that happened today. A lot of people saw it where somebody said something and it was taken in context and then evolved from there. The more we talk, the more dangerous the situation is. Nancy Eaton Gordon, who's a great lawyer in Lenaway, says, Innocent until proven guilty. Your job is to prove you guilty, so don't help them. Cops are trained to get your words twisted. Deceptions is allowed. Even outright lies are allowed. And Nancy would know. She's a good criminal lawyer. You're right, Nance. I gotta tell you. There are lies allowed. But our job, I personally feel, and you do defense work, when a cop lies, you gotta go at him. You gotta go at him hard i say to people this when a prosecutor says can my victim have a therapy dog i say sure but you might want to keep that therapy dog for the cop when i'm done with him on cross-examination because he's going to be crying remember cross-examination man that separates the men from the boys the girls from the women nancy gordon says the troop should be the goal but unfortunately they're closing a case and close rates also play into it yeah They are. It's really sad when an innocent person wants to take a plea because they're concerned at the risk of trial. Scott Grable always taught me this, though. Some cases are about guilt and innocence, and some cases are about risk assessment. Our job is to give our client the best possible defense. Now, that may mean kicking ass at trial. It may mean getting a plea where they don't do any time. It may mean a plea where you saved them 20 years. Every case is different. This is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. However, shut the f*** up when the cops want to talk. It's not going to help. Okay. Now, let's move on to some fun stuff. About three topics that came to mind today. The Chicago Bulls dynasty and how it ended. The ending of Seinfeld and the ending of The Sopranos. Now, I'm at different points in my life when certain things were happening here, but today we were talking about New Jersey and about ending eras and how people change and people move forward. And what you thought was cool as a 20 year old maybe something you're just not impressed with at 40. How do we change so much over time? And when we look at old TV shows or old sporting events, do we do that for nostalgia? When you think of the Chicago Bulls winning their sixth title in 1998, is that a good memory or a bad memory? Let's talk about that. What I'm going to do is briefly tell these three stories about these two, these three eras ending. When the Bulls won their sixth title against the Utah Jazz, June 14th, 1998, there was a video I posted yesterday, There's this song called How's It Gonna Be from Third Eye Blind. It is a great song. But how's it gonna be? It's talk about closure. It's about something ending. And we always know that closure can be painful. Closure of good things can be painful, closure of bad things can be painful. We see people leave high school and they're crying their eyes out because they loved high school so much. We see people leave a job to make more money and they're devastated. Because people are really scared of change. It comes down to. And sometimes the memories are like the one thing we have to hold on to. So I remember this Bulls game very well. I had bet the Utah Jazz and I lost. And I thought the Jazz were gonna win it that year. It was John Stockton, it was Carl Malone. It was two great teams going out of it. Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. And I'm a young kid in college, right? So there's three of us watching the game on Dudley Avenue in Ventnor Heights. My house in Ventnor Heights was the one that was destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. And the house was kind of. We bought the house. My Aunt Mary Mom and I got the house when we left the ghetto of Atlantic City and I'm a kid right so 1998 I'm really a young kid and it was one of the first big sporting events we watched at the house there are memories there so we're watching this game and there's three of us it's my best friend Henry Hedeville, Q um, Scott Zolber may he rest in peace we're watching this game, and Scotty had bet the Bulls. I had money in told Jazz. I think I had like 250 on the game, and that was a lot of money for me in college. You know, I'm bartending a casino. I'm a kid. It's a big bet. lost. Scotty won. Q never bet. Q was probably the smartest of the three of us. He just watched. and we're sitting there with White House cheesesteaks. We're watching the game. and even though I lost. Seeing Michael Jordan in game six, which is something special. If you can't appreciate Michael Jordan when the pressure was on, you just can't appreciate ball. And after the game was over, they played How's It Gonna Be, a short version of it. Like I said, I posted it yesterday. And we're just looking at each other and we knew like this was this moment in time. We also kind of knew we weren't gonna be together in the same way much anymore. Um, Scott was gonna go off to Rutgers Law School. Q was gonna go off to pharmacy school. Q knew he'd get married young. Scott was engaged. I was a single one and law school was on the horizon, but law school was a few years away from me. And we just kind of knew like it was odd. It was one of the last, times we would ever really be together your friends at the age of 20 may not be your closest friends at the age of 40 or they may always be emotionally connected to you but when you look at 20 to 40 right when you look at that time frame the people that were in your inner circle at 20 if you really have that whole click 10 to 20 times the rest of your life you're lucky things just change and as mj was going up doing his reverse layups and they're playing how's it going to be and you're seeing scotty pippen and jordan just waving goodbye it was the end it was closure it was kind of like a sign that well we're growing up we're moving out scotty would die way too young hughes back in jersey great career great family Loved them. Missed them both. I mean, Q and I probably talk once every couple weeks. Scott's gone, unfortunately. But we think back to that moment. There's something special about sports. It brings you together. There was something special about Jordan winning that last title. And there's something special about how that song just played perfectly. The video. And they're walking off into the sunset. And it's like, Wow things are gonna change things are gonna change um, quickly and if I told you that 1998 was how is it 23 24 years ago that's insane you know and I could watch that video all day it's it's kind of like those were the good old days and how did it happen so quick a, a month before that was the ending of Seinfeld. I know the live audience hates Seinfeld. But let me tell you something. During Seinfeld, May 14th, 1998, it was Q. It was Scott. It was John Totoro, We're watching the end of Seinfeld at the Alky. The Alki was this little club Little gym in Atlantic City On uh, Mississippi Avenue We remember, as we had keys There was this little tiny gym in the back And a punching bag And used to box back there It was an amazing getaway actually Bad neighborhood Okay, back then But it was an amazing getaway John um, Went to high school with him He would die way too young. Scotty, I mentioned, would die way too young. But the four of us were sitting there watching Seinfeld at the al Club. And Seinfeld played a big role in our youth. You know, I know some people think it's overrated. But it was, in my opinion, the best comedy ever. And we didn't like the way it ended. Yeah, but... For hours, we just sat there, and we talked, and we went to shoot pool, and the, there was a pool table at the Alki. and we talked about all the episodes of Seinfeld. What was your favorite? What happened here or there? And eight, nine years that Seinfeld was on, it was interesting. Because here's John Turturro, who, in my opinion, was the smartest in the room. Computer genius. Start hanging with a really bad crowd, developed a really bad drug habit. And this is one of the last times that John was, like, normal, I would say. Here's Scott Zolber, this amazing legal mind. He was going to go off and do bankruptcy. He knew that. He perfected at a young age. <clears throat> Miss Scottie a lot. Here's Q, this pharmacist-to-be. He could have been a doctor if he wanted, but he wanted to get married, and have a family. That was Q's thing. And here's me, this kid from uh, Ducktown, who's bartending the casino, going to Stockton full time, has this idea to be a lawyer. You have like four different walks of life, right? You have the Margate kid, which was Scott, the Vetner kid, which was Q. John and I were Atlantic City kids, but we kind of had different upbringings. And I kind of felt like this show brought us together. It really did. And that was the last time I ever actually sold John in, like, a social setting. And, you know, it's funny about 1998. You're a kid in 1998. 20 years old or whatever, and you're watching life just go by, and part of you knows that, you know, things are changing. And those two things happening back-to-back, back, Seinfeld and the Bulls dynasty a month apart. It was a special year, but it was a year that was a foundation for so many things to come. You knew at that point, in some ways you were just growing up. And these two things, this amazing sitcom, this tremendous basketball game, this dynasty, which was the Chicago Bulls, you were smart enough to appreciate it, but you were also kind of saddened that, whether we like it or not, We gotta go our own different directions here. And all of us went very different directions. You know, and it's odd when you look back on things like that and people you care about are dead. John was a nice guy, he was okay. I wouldn't say John was a close friend at all, but we enjoyed each other's company. We were two of the only white kids in Atlantic City He lived on uh, Texas Avenue. I lived on Willow Avenue, which is right by Mississippi Avenue. So we both had some stories to tell from there. We handled things very differently. Um, I was the failed athlete. John was more of the computer guy. He got in with a really, what I would consider a rough crowd. When I say rough crowd, it was like John was never, he was never viewed as cool, you know. Uh, the hot girl never wanted John. He just wasn't in the cliques. We were cool, but he was different. Then he got connected with this group. And with that came a lot of drug using and stuff. Good kid. But we just separated. Scotty, which I won't talk about his passing because it's just hits too close to home, just died way too young, lived a lot longer than John, But when you think back to memories like this... I mean, 1998, is it that long ago? But here's, like, these kids that we grew up with that are gone. You know? um, It's just weird. In some ways, when I think back to Scott Zolber... Amazing memories there. But he's also kind of pissed off. Like, why isn't Scott here right now? You know? You can never take away the ending of Seinfeld and the ending of the Bulls' dynasty... We always will have that i remember going to the eagles opener in uh 2018 scott grable got me tickets and it was eagles and falcons right the eagles won and scotty had died um several months before that and all i kept thinking of scott should be here right now it was really weird and i thought back to that bulls championship An Eagles opening day, there was something special about that, because we finally won the Super Bowl. And, you know, people say to me, you're not the Eagles fan you used to be. You have, like, this affinity for the Lions now. And I I do want to see the Lions win. You know, I've kind of been here consistently since 2004. There was an interval there, but... I think the Eagles... It was something special growing up as a Big Birds fan. And you support the team, uh, South Jersey, Philadelphia Town. And I'm really happy they won a Super Bowl. But when Scott Zolber passed away, it was almost like part of my passion for the Eagles passed away with it. Because part of Eagles football, to me, was calling Scott every Sunday. 1 o'clock or four o'clock or eight o'clock or monday night or thursday whatever the hell they were playing scott EZ and i used to go over to games matter how busy either one of us were and scott found success a lot quicker than me let me be real about that he was smarter than me man he was great at what he did there were times he wanted me to come back to jersey work for his firms but me and jersey just were not a fit you know but we the eagles were kind of thing that bonded us together and we would often talk about that Chicago Bulls championship team in 98. It was like glue, you know? Here we are. What's Michigan, length, the 800 miles, whatever. Got this 800 mile distance, two very different worlds, but the Eagles brought us together. So when Scotty passed, Scott passes away. Eagles won the Super Bowl before he passed away. Your whole life, one of the jokes were, would I be alive to see the Eagles win the Super Bowl? Okay, we were. Then he's gone. I like the Eagles. I hope. I'm playing they in the playoffs. But the passion to be an Eagles fan is not what it used to be, mainly because of Scott Zolber's death. And I will say, as much as I appreciate sports in general, I just don't think basketball is as good today as it was in 1998. LeBron James is arguably a better player than Michael Jordan. Okay? Arguably. I know people get pissed off about that, but he's an amazing player. But there was something special about Jordan. And I wasn't the huge Jordan fan when he was playing that many other people were. But you also wonder, was part of the reason... you have so much admiration and fondness for that time period was because the people that were around you it wasn't just mj beating carl malone and john stockton it wasn't just how's it going to be being played on nbc it was being with q and zolber for one of the last times you know and that's something you can't take away they kind of are like the good old days even though it's not that old but you know you're in your early 40s and just sitting back like, holy shit, Half a life's gone. And we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We just don't know. The death of Scott Zolber at 44 makes you wonder about a lot of things. It does. I remember, um, yeah, that was a special time period. But we transition. June 10th, 2007. The ending of The Sopranos. (laughs) So, here's the deal with this one. I'm in law school. My mom would actually die four days later. Mom died real young. Mom was fighting ovarian cancer. And one of the things we used to do on Sundays was um I would call Aunt Mary and Mom at my apartment in Lansing when I was at Cooley, and we would talk about what's going to happen on Sopranos today. You know, and then talk about the show afterwards. And I'm like a little kid calling Aunt Mary and Mom. And at my apartment that night, there was Brian Largie, who was a great guy. He's going to be a congressman in New Jersey at some point. Good lawyer in New Jersey. Good friend. Brian was like a big brother in law school. Retired state trooper. He looked out for me. I would say he took me under his wing a lot. Love Brian Largie. Special guy. He's been there for me during deaths of loved ones. And I'll always appreciate Brian. But Brian was there. Brian Carmichael. Who I have no idea what he's doing now. Mark Frisbee. Who's a damn good public defender in Montana. Facebook friend and we're watching the sopranos we're like holy this is the end like how is this show ending because it had so much good stuff to go and it was weird because i know mom's near death and what the sopranos was for me at that point was like an escape so here's what i was doing i was busting my ass in law school right i had a part-time job as a journalist and i'm flying back to jersey as much as i can because i don't know it's always touch and go and i had to make medical decisions for mom tough time man tough time and uh so for the sopranos when it came on on sunday night it was like you escaped everything for a little bit you know the pressure of law school the stress that your mom's going to pass away um how is aunt Mayor going to cope with this Make sure you have enough money in the bank to throw back to them. That's a story found out of time, but it was taken care of. And here's The Sopranos. And I'm talking to Aunt Mary and Mom, and the guys come over. And we're watching The Sopranos. And, Tom, um, I remember the ending comes on. Now, if you know the ending, it's a bullshit ending, man. Rick Goldie and I is a good friend of mine. We told about this at length over dinner. Here's the ending. We don't know if Tony gets killed. We don't know if anybody else gets killed. But he's in the diner. It fades to black. And I swear to God. We're freaking the f- out. We're saying to ourselves, what happened? We're calling Comcast. Hey, what's going on? My TV just went out. We're flipping other channels. And it's like... Wait, like the other channels are working. My aunt's blowing up my cell phone. She's like, Billy, what the f*** happened? She goes, the Sopranos went dead. we well, right near the end. And mom's pissed off. She'll be under the phone. This is bullshit. You know, she's close to death, but my Italian Gloria here was pissed the f*** off that she didn't get to see the end of The Sopranos. And we learned, like, it was the end of The Sopranos. They stuck it up our ass with that ending. I will never forgive David Chase for that ending. And by the way... The many saints in Newark, go f yourself. Spoiler alert. The fact that Junior had Dickie Maldasanti killed. And the fact that Dickie killed his mistress slash mother. What the f Stepmom. That, that was bullshit. So all these years, Junior killed Dickie? That was a slap in the face, man. I knew I shouldn't have watched that movie I knew it it almost killed my memories of Sopranos I'm so pissed about the many saints in Newark ah oh, we'll get me started anyway so where was I <laughs> before I got so rudely interrupted the many saints in Newark the Sopranos was f- amazing but the ending was unforgivable but I will say something that ending still has us talking about it um 15 years later so. It was a good memory. It was a good memory of the people I was around that Piss had
0: the show in. And-